Hi there. Welcome to Unstuck, the podcast where we have conversations about areas in our life where we may have been or are stuck. Whether that is relationally, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually, and often because we are intricately connected human beings, it is a few of these areas all at once. I'm the host of Unstuck, Dr. Emily Stone. I'm a marriage and family therapist, as well as an ordained minister, and issues related to growth, formation, and development are passions of mine. I love having conversations with people and can't wait to share with you some amazing people, people like you, and their stories. Today, we are talking with Emily Zimmer, attorney, mom, wife, and friend extraordinaire. Emily is going to give us insight into her journey through depression and anxiety after the birth of her son. Emily is one of the kindest and wisest people I know. Whether or not you have faced anxiety or depression, particularly postpartum depression, you are going to get so much out of this conversation. So many nuggets of truth. Come and see. And I think my first memory of meeting you was on Twitter. I think I started following you on Twitter when I knew that we were moving here or we started following each other. Yeah, when we knew we were going to be living pretty close to you, I remember sending you emails Mm -hmm. asking you about where my kids should go to school or preschool and where I should go get them close. I think we moved here like a day or two before school started. It was kind of crazy. Kind of crazy two years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got these incredibly detailed emails from you. (laughs) At 11.30 at night, right when you were sending them, we had the same schedule. Oh my gosh, right. I would send them so late, and then you would write back, and I'm like, oh, this is my friend. This is my person. She's going to be one of my people. (laughs) And and so detailed. Like, it was just, yeah, I I thought, okay, this is someone I need to keep close to me, so... (laughs) Uh, and then we get here, and I find um, we find the trash bag hanging on our doorknob, full of supplies, full of not su- trash, <laughs> full of supplies, <laughs> with instructions letting us know that we could use the trash bag for trash. <laughs> Do you remember doing that? I don't, but it sounds like me. <laughs> oh yes, it sounds like Emily Zimmer. Oh my gosh, yeah. So. Yeah, I was just um, thinking about words that describe you to me, and the first word that came to my mind was steady, Mm. steady, and um, you are one of the most giving, likable, loving people I know, and I also know that there is a tiger inside of you, too, (laughs) that... Is there that I've seen behind the scenes, but mostly I've seen on the road. So when you drive, <laughs> right? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, okay, well, I'm gonna let her drive because she will get us there. So safely, always safely. Always safely. We have never had any kind of even remotely dangerous, I don't think, encounters. So. Yeah, so you're just really steady, and also, I think one thing that stands out to me about you is, with that steadiness, it's like, I I know I'm always going to get you. I'm not, I mean, and I know that sounds kind of silly, but it's like, I just know what I'm going to get when I call you, when I text you, 
when I text you a few weeks after we moved here because mm -hmm. I can't talk to you because I'm crying so Aww. hard. <laughs> I know, I was breaking down. Oh my gosh, yeah. I just know, yeah, you're going to just just be you and I can count on who that is. So Thank you. Yeah, well, um, thank you for being here today and being willing to talk. Um, so the other thing, so that's kind of you personally, but... This is also when I get to tell people things that you don't often tell people. Like, okay, so remind me, you went to Washington and Lee, but not just Washington and Lee, you were valedictorian of your class, right? I was, yes. Right? And, and we're not talking valedictorian as a communications major. <laughs> <laughs> you were valedictorian as a math major. Yes. Yes. Math and classics. Don't <laughs> oh my God. Okay. <laughs> All right, I got that part wrong. No. Math and classics major. Um, what is classics? Like, was it just Latin and Greek? Latin and Greek. Mm -hmm. So I took Latin in high school and loved it and ended up getting a Latin exam scholarship that required me to take one language course per semester in order to keep it. And I knew I wanted to go to law school after right. college. And so it didn't really matter what I majored in. I could major in something that I enjoyed. So I decided to major in classics. So I added on Greek once I got to college. Okay. Greek language. And so it's Latin and Greek language and Roman Greek culture. Wow. Sort of wrapped in together. So you double majored in mm -hmm. math and this major that's basically Greek and Latin. Yes. And you were valedictorian. Correct. Nice. Okay. Right. And so then you mentioned um, law school. So mm -hmm. then you went on to the number one law school in the country. Right? Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. Harvard yeah. Law School. <clears throat> okay. And you and your husband both went to Boston during that time because mm -hmm. he was working on a PhD in chemistry at MIT. Yes. Yeah. Like I, I thought you guys only existed on TV shows, <laughs> but you are here yeah. and you're my friend and you guys are like the most down to earth people I know. So thank you. Yeah. So anyways, I wanted to make sure I just got all that out there. And also the mom of how old is Luke now? Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Well, I wanted to um be able to have a conversation with you because um, I know that speaking of Luke after you had Luke that you went through a season that I'm just from talking with you and hearing your story was I think kind of surprising mm -hmm. for you and and for John so I just I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing some of that with us today yeah absolutely yeah so I had always been really excited to be a mom and to have kids and loved babies and holding babies. And by the time John and I wanted to try to have kids, we'd been married over four years at that point, And it was just really time and we were excited and everything was great. I mean, we were very blessed and not having really any trouble and in, in getting pregnant and staying pregnant. And it was a very healthy pregnancy and... We were just really excited to welcome Luke, and he came uneventfully, but pretty much right away after his birth, just things didn't feel right, and I, I ended up sinking into a pretty deep uh, postpartum anxiety and depression period. It was very sudden and very unexpected and out of the blue, as people might understand from what we just talked a bit about my background growing up and coming through school and whatnot I was very used to being a pretty competent person um someone who yeah. was fairly high functioning 
in general and fairly high fashion. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Is and that so, what we call that? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to know what I am then. Okay. And so, you know, having this period um, was just very, very unexpected and I didn't know what to do with it and it really yeah. threw me for a loop. Did it happen, did, did you start to, and you said you, you, you kind of sunk into this depression, anxiety, did it happen um, almost immediately after he was born? Was it days or? It was virtually immediately. I mean, even in the hospital, immediately after he was born, of course, I was thrilled that he was here. I loved him deeply sure. from the very beginning, but I emotionally didn't feel that sort of rush of euphoria I didn't feel the automatic instincts, mothering instincts. It all felt very foreign and scary to me almost right away. And I think um, I figured out later that it was perhaps having to do with how I was entering into motherhood, the expectations I was bringing to it, treating it, you know, like a problem set where... Mm. There is a task, and yeah, I would want to figure out the formula to perform the task, yeah, perfectly, uh, which is keeping this baby happy and well fed and all of that. And I didn't feel like I had the tools to do that. And so even in the hospital and then coming home, I just felt anxiety was the the primary emotion that hit, um, and then the depression was sort of a side effect of the anxiety because. I felt so bad and guilty Mm -hmm. about experiencing the debilitating anxiety and not being able to function that I was depressed about that. And I'm going to interrupt you just for a second because something you said, it it triggered a memory for me when you said about the competency and kind of that, I'm not sure exactly how you said it, but the task and the Mm -hmm. list and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and after having Eloise, who's my oldest, that there were actually um, a few complications at the very end after having her. Because I, I was breastfeeding and my milk didn't come in. I remember going to the doctor with Eloise and my mother-in-law went with me because we, we were living in California. Uh, and they were the ones, they were living out there as well. And I remember I got, I must have kind of had this demeanor about me going into the pediatrician's office. It's like, I can do this and... We've got to take care of this. And I was very just kind of focused. Mm-hmm. And so then talking to the pediatrician and leaving, I remember my mother-in-law saying to me, you know, Emily, this isn't a tennis match. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget that because, you know, I played tennis. And I think I even could tell I had I had kind of all of a sudden gone into that mode. Yeah. Like I yeah, this, where's the next ball? I've got to hit it and I can do this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. I mean, I, I, Luke and I had feeding issues as well. That was a big part of that first week that sort of led to the, the spiral or was all wrapped up into it. Supply issues and, and all of that. And so trying to fix that, trying to work on that, trying to meet the two to three hour, Mm fire drill, feeding schedule, and regimen, and pumping, and supplementing, and it literally by the end of that week, I was legitimately having thoughts of, well, this is it, we're all just going to wither up and die in our own home, because there's literally no time to do anything like go to the store and get food for ourselves, much less our child, so that was the the depth that within that first week, things had 
had gotten to, and it was very scary. You mentioned the feeding issues. Was there any pressure or expectations put on you regarding feeding that contributed to some of that anxiety and depression, meaning like things that you had read or been told or even just things that you came up with in your own head? Yeah, nothing external, but just my own internal desire, mainly. It's something I'd wanted to do. It's something that I wanted for Luke for the health benefits. And it was, it in some ways at the time when I was first trying and he was first born, it felt easier because it was sort of like always available. You didn't have to stop and make a bottle, you know, all these sort of logistical things in my head at the time. It just right. felt like this is going to be so much simpler if we can do it this way. It's going to be, you know, less expensive because at the time... Meaning breastfeeding. Like yes. It, it would be simpler to breastfeed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It would be simpler to breastfeed. It would be less expensive. <clears throat> John was in law school at the time. I was working as an attorney. So we were fine, you know, but we were a single income family at the time. All of that was swirling through my head. And, and it was something I, again, just wanted to do. I myself am adopted, so I was a formula-fed baby. So I didn't have stigma really wrapped around formula. It wasn't a line in the sand that I was, like, not going to cross, you know, because yeah. nothing would come of it. Like, I knew I turned out fine. But it was it was just something that I, I wanted and wanted for him. Okay. Yeah, I think... Looking back, I, I, if I'm honest with myself, I think it, it was kind of a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. I think from um, just things I'd read or messages I'd picked up. And my mother-in-law had not breastfed any of hers. And I think that was, you know, she's watching me struggle. Mm-hmm. And she's like, just give her a bottle. Right. <laughs> For the love. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, and it did. I don't know where I picked up on that. But it's like there was going to be some sense of failure or something, mm-hmm. which I just, now looking back, you know, it's been so many years, it's just kind of like, what, what, what was that? Right. You know? And that was another thing for me, just physically, um, I know some women describe, again, sort of, as they are nursing their children, this sense of euphoria coming over them and, like, intense bonding and all that, and for me, for whatever reason, that didn't happen, and instead, every time I nursed, it was the opposite. It was very draining. Okay. Not yeah. just emo- emotionally <clears throat> and physically. I yeah. felt like I couldn't ever drink enough water. I couldn't ever eat enough food. One of my friends, dear friends, who was in the middle of trying to move, came over like on day three or four. And it's like, what can I do to help? And I'm like, just make peanut butter sandwiches out of that loaf of bread, please. <laughs> so in the middle of the night, right. I can come down and <clears throat> eat a peanut yeah. butter sandwich. And so, you know, that was just part of the whole experience running myself into the ground, really, trying to do this thing. It's exhausting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I was able to keep going, and Mm -hmm. it was, draining's a good word. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just, it does, it's it's exhausting. And there there is a bonding to it. And my mother-in-law would talk about, she bonded over bottle feeding. Right. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, but it's so interesting. I think that right out of the gate, that's the issue that kind Mm -hmm. of, can really be a snare for so many people. It's kind of can be a hang-up. And I know there's way more to your story than just that. Yeah, I mean, that was a big part of that first week. And so essentially, um, I found myself, you know, just really literally... I mean, Luke was a great baby. You know, he slept pretty well. But I, by the end of that first seven to ten days, 
I couldn't sleep even when he was sleeping. I was literally pacing the halls, wringing my hands, having shortness of breath and panic attacks because I didn't know how to do this. And so I found it very hard to put together coherent thoughts or sentences or have a conversation to answer simple questions like, do you want Cheerios or Frosted Flakes for breakfast? Or do you want to eat or take a shower? And again, it was just very disorienting because I'd never experienced anything like that in my entire life. So by day 10, we went to my doctor to say something is drastically wrong. And she, you know, tried to talk to us, try to figure out, okay, is this just sort of normal new mom overwhelmness? What's going yeah. on here? And we kept trying to impress upon her, no, this is serious. Yeah. Um, so she's like, well, the only thing I can tell you to do is go to the ER and try to see a psychiatrist. On day 10, we're back in the ER, um, we're back at the hospital where I delivered this time in the ER, um, waiting to see a psychiatrist and still vacillating going back for, should we be here? Should we not? Right. I'm having anxiety about the germs that I'm picking up that I'm going to be taking home to my baby. Right. And right as we were maybe going to get up and leave, they called my name to bring me back. And so I, I did end up seeing a psychiatrist that night. They did end up admitting me for one night to um, get me started on medication to try to level things out chemically and create a baseline from which to start to function again. At this point, John's parents had come in town and his mom was taking care of Luke all day. He went back to, to be with Luke that night and it was only because they didn't have a bed available in the psych ward that they admitted me to sort of a general women's floor yeah. and I was able to be discharged the next day. Otherwise, I think I would have spent more time okay. in the psych ward. I'm just thinking about you're already in that place of being, you know, wringing your hands and being anxious and then I'm, then you go to the ER and have to sit in there, which I, I've sat in the ER before. Yeah. And then just, I'm guessing you had, had you seen a psychiatrist? But no. yes, yeah, it's all brand new. And I'm just wondering, I can imagine how terrifying just that whole experience was. And then being It was, yes. I mean, it was our first introduction to the mental health system in this country. The first conversations with the on-call psychiatrist were difficult. Again, I mean, I understand their position. They're trying to figure out what's going on here. You know, I was trying to explain what I was experiencing, but again, I'm in this state where I can't speak coherently. Right. <laughs> but they're trained to be suspicious of, you know, anyone other than the person who's going through it, right? So if John's trying to explain what we're experiencing, that was given, you know, less weight. And okay. part of what I'm saying is, you know, I care so much about my son and I want him to be fed and grow and do well, but I'm not able to do that. Like, I don't know how to do that. And so they're confused because I guess a lot of times, you know, they see or hear other sides of things, you know, women who really are having like a psychotic break or something where there's negative feelings toward the child or whatever, oh, okay. you know, experience there is where there's this, you know, desire to not have anything to do with the child or something. And that wasn't my experience, but it was just, yeah, it was very sort of confusing and disorienting. And um, ultimately, we got the attention of another psychiatrist who sort of 
could understand what was happening and described it to John as sort of classic postpartum, like high, high, high anxiety. And I think I learned later that he used the word, you know, like border borderline psychosis or something okay. like that. I don't know that he actually gave that official diagnosis, but I do know that the cocktail of medications that they put me on at the time included Seroquel, which I, okay. again, learned later is an antipsychotic. Right. So that and Celexa and Clonopin became my cocktail okay. for at least the next two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And you had not taken medication up until that point. So no. that's a totally new experience for you. Yeah. Do you remember any of your thoughts or feelings about being put on the medication and and then and then following through and taking it. Yeah, so mm-hmm. my immediate reaction was relief actually because okay. it had been such a tumultuous, I mean it sounds silly now, but week and a half um that it felt like okay, finally maybe we're getting somewhere, you know, this is maybe going to end at some point somehow and this medication could play a role in that. So initially it was hopeful, um, but I think I also was wanting it to be immediate, super fast acting. All I have to do is take this pill and I'm back to my old self right right away. And so, you know, as the days went on and I went back home and, you know, we had to figure out a new normal and um, John was, you know, having to do so much um, to take care of Luke and me and... Um, all of that, I, you know, started to, that's when sort of the guilt started to set in Mm -hmm. and, um, not necessarily, you know, my own personal sort of guilt about the medication in particular or stigma about the medication in particular, but just, um, the whole ball of wax, including the fact that I was having to take this medication, which for the first two weeks, the Seroquel literally knocked me out all night, every night. Um, so I got a full night's sleep. For the first two weeks. Okay. And John was sleeping on the couch downstairs with Luke in the pack and play and handling every feeding wow. um, at night. And so I just, you know, again, felt horrible about that because I'm used to taking care of everyone else and thinking about what everyone else needs and, yep. you know, trying to anticipate that. And, and you're very good at that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's a big part of who you are. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, eventually, um, had sort of this, uh, antagonistic relationship with the medication in my own mind, because, um, as the weeks went on, it was stabilizing me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to take care of Luke by myself. I was able to have a conversation and make simple decisions, mm-hmm. um, but everyone else around me could see a lot more external progress by observing me than I felt internally. I still felt very much in turmoil. I still felt much more anxiety than I was used to feeling. And so to me, internally, it felt like this isn't working. This isn't working fast enough. This isn't, again, the magic pill that I want it to be. Um, and how long are we talking here? So how old is Luke yeah. at this point? Um, so all the way up until nine weeks, I would say there's this sort of gradual progression of, um, I came off the Seroquel after like two weeks or so because 
it just wasn't, um, I didn't need something that strong and it was making me not be able to function at night when I needed to or in the morning. Um, and so the Celexa and the Clonopin, you know, did help to sort of create a baseline from which I could minimally start to function again. But even at like five weeks, I have this very vivid memory of we took a trip about an hour and a half away up to Winston-Salem to visit our good friends up there and bring them some furniture that they had lent us and, and just have a nice visit with them for the day. And their oldest at the time was five years old, and the layout of their house was such that he could run laps in the middle of their house between their living room <laughs> and their dining room and their kitchen and their mm-hmm. hallway. and As five-year-olds are wont to um, do. Exactly. Yes. And he was doing that, and it was really cute. And I vividly remember my friend turning to me as I'm holding Luke and feeding Luke and asking me, can you believe Luke is going to be that old one day or Luke's going to be doing that one day? And I honestly, like, I looked at him and I honestly said, no, I can't believe it. I can't envision it because I was still, even at five weeks, in the place where I was not confident that I could keep him alive until he was five years old. Wow. <laughs> Thankfully, he's nine and a half now, so yes, I think we're... Yes, <laughs> I saw him today. Right, but, he's you know... He's young man, he is. Thank you. Yeah. But even then, you know, five weeks in, um, I mean, I cried all day that day for that visit. It was just very um, rough. So I um, I think I mentioned, you know, I was working at the time. Um, my firm had a generous, you know, 12-week fully paid maternity leave policy. And um, I remember as I was approaching the end of that maternity leave, so maybe around nine weeks, um, I was starting to... Um, be more self-conscious about the fact that I was still on medication and I somehow got it in my head that I can't be on medication when I go back to work or I shouldn't be on medication when I go Mm. back to work um, or I don't want to be or whatever it was. Did you think it was going to impact your work? It was going to interfere with your abilities? Yeah, potentially. Um, Or that someone would find out? Yeah, probably all of that. It wasn't okay. very rational <laughs> at the sure, time. Sure, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was just, it was some sort of, I think, idea that, again, I should be able to do this. I okay. should be able to pull myself up by uh, my own bootstraps right, and be the right. competent person that I know that I am. Right. And just do it. Just push through. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Why am I still having to rely on this crutch? You know, it's okay. sort of the mental messages that were going on inside my head at the time. It's time to pull it together. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided around nine weeks um, to wean myself off of my medication on my own. Did you tell anybody? Over the course of a week. No, I did not. Did you tell John? I did not until I had done okay. it. And um, I had to tell him because we were basically back at square one. Because all of the external signs and symptoms were still there without the medication. So he, um, I was not in a good place. I was talking to a friend from Boston who was still in Boston. And she could tell um, that I was in a not really good place. And she got on a plane the next day and flew down here. And She was so worried after talking with you on the phone mm-hmm. that she got on the plane yeah. and flew down here. Okay. And um, she was I mean, she ran a car. She stopped at the grocery store before she got to our house. She came bearing, like, tons of recipes. She cooked, I don't know, half a dozen freezer meals while she was here. She was pregnant with her third child oh my at gosh. the time, like six months pregnant. It was That's incredible. That's kind of for any keep, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, and 
during this time, so John had started back at school. The semester had started. He was a second-year law student. Right. So, and I know we said earlier that he has a PhD in chemistry from MIT. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to law school yes. at the University of South Carolina. And so now he does, he's an attorney as well. Mm-hmm. And he does, um, I don't even... <laughs> I don't even really know what he does. Yeah, he's a chemical patent <laughs> right. prosecutor, so okay. he writes patent applications. For... I could have said something similar, yeah, yeah, but yeah. just would not have sounded like that. <laughs> I think it was something like that. Yes, yeah. yes. So Luke was born in the summer after his first year of law school, and okay. um, it was, I mean, pretty dreamy in the sense that he had about a five-week gap between the end of his summer job and the start of the semester. Yeah. Luke's first five weeks of life, um, which I know a lot of people don't get both people home. And, I mean, it turned out to be a real godsend because I don't know how we would have made it. Otherwise, I mean, he would have had to take some sort of leave or something from work if he had been working. But So he didn't miss a beat? He didn't miss a beat. He was okay. incredible. Um, he had more instincts than I did, more parental instincts. He was so calm, cool, and collected. It was amazing. He was our rock. I mean, he knew what to do. He was like, it's fine. We just do this. We try this. It'll be fine. And I was so befuddled by it all because what I was seeing in him was so foreign to what mm. I was feeling inside. I was like, how, how are you doing this? How are you okay? Like, aren't you falling apart? <laughs> like, this is such a strain on you. How are you not buckling under the strain? And he was like, no, really, I'm fine. And, you know, I'm, it was supernatural grace for sure. And, I mean, he's just, he's an amazing man, so it was all that wrapped together, um, and I'm so grateful for him um, in so many ways. But during that time, you know, he did have to go back to to school when the semester started, so he had started classes back. The beginning of second year law school is one of the busiest and hardest times in law school because you have normal classwork, but then you also, if you made it onto law review, which he did, that's when your law review responsibilities really kick in. And then, because of the crazy accelerated time of law firm hiring, that's when you're doing all of your on-campus and callback interviews with law firms in order to secure a job for the next summer. Okay. So, he was having to juggle all of that, again, around week eight or nine, um, and I'm still on maternity leave, and and it's fine. But I think because of his busyness, that's probably why he hadn't noticed right away when I would try when I did go off the medication and we myself off okay. the medication. I mean it okay. took several days for the negative effects to start showing up. But, but just then, days though. Right. Just days. Just days. Okay. And so it was really um during that visit from my friend where, you know, we John and I had some time together because she, you know, it's like, I'll stay here, I'll, you know, watch Luke, yeah. y'all go out and have dinner. And so we um we went to Fratelli's up here on Market mm-hmm. Street. Uh, it was on Sunday, place. actually. Yeah. For the first time ever. Yeah. yeah. And um, we're sitting there, and I I can't carry on a conversation. I can't answer questions. I can't literally back at square one. And so that was sort of the one time. Were you aware that you were, that you yes. were there, too? Yes. Okay. I was okay. aware that this isn't a good thing, and I need to go back on medication. <laughs> but it was... It was sort of another low point, Um, and in the midst of it all, that was sort of the one evening, probably, which is pretty remarkable, where John, you know, got the most frustrated, and understandably so, because this has been a long haul. He has borne so much, yeah. and now after all this, we're back at square. 
And so, you know, during dinner, he is sort of visibly frustrated, like, what is going on here? But he's like, let's let's take a walk. Let's, you know, we're just a few blocks away from home. It's, we've only taken an hour for dinner. Like, let's just take a walk. So we take a walk, and I'm trying on this walk to just explain to him what I'm feeling. And I'm saying, you know, trying to apologize. I'm trying to express the guilt, um, how bad I feel. And I end up saying something along the lines of, you know, you and Luke would just be so much better off if I didn't exist. If mm -hmm. I just weren't here. Because then you would only have to take care of him. You would have to take care of both of us. And it was at that moment that he stopped me. And we're just on the sidewalk. And he's looking at me. And his whole demeanor and facial expression had completely changed. And it was just the purest look of love that I'd ever experienced. Um, I mean, we'd been married, you know, five years at that point. Obviously, yeah. I knew he loved me. But that moment was a divine impartation of grace that mm. I could see on his face. And it made me so uncomfortable because I was in this spot where I felt so unworthy of that love. I felt so unworthy of that gaze. And I told him to stop. I'm like, stop. And he's like, stop what? Stop looking at me that way. Mm. Um, stop loving me like that. And he said, no. No, you don't get to tell me to stop <laughs> loving you. I love you. And that's that. And I know this is hard. And I know this is harder than either of us imagined it would be. But we're going to be okay. We're going to be fine. And I love you. And that's that. You're not going anywhere. I'm not going to let you go anywhere. We'll be fine. And so... You know, he, he points to that 20-minute period before that walk, you know, mm -hmm. as probably the roughest time for him where he really he really did lose hope um, for that 20 minutes. Thankfully, it was only 20 minutes, but <laughs> he thought, okay, well, I guess I pretty much have lost my wife. I need to just consider the reality being that Emily basically died in childbirth. She's wow. not who she was and she it doesn't look like it's ever going to be again so that's my role now I'm her caretaker I'm Luke's father and and he was geared up for that in those moments yeah yeah which is again pretty remarkable um that you know well that yeah you both reality. are pretty remarkable people <laughs> so yeah so yeah one of the the turning points. I mean, again, a very low point and yeah. a very square one, but a... You said one of the turning points. I mean, there's, yeah. it sounds like, it seems like there were, there were several kind of markers, mm -hmm. major markers along the way. Exactly. Because it was, it was after that point that, you know, really, again, I'm the sole breadwinner for our family at the time. So I have to go back to work in three weeks and I have to be able to function as an attorney and not commit malpractice. And <laughs> so, you know, even notwithstanding that night and that walk, which were beautiful, again, it wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't a magic pill. It wasn't, yeah. I'm back to my old self. Thankfully, the spot that Luke had available at the daycare a couple blocks from my office had become available already. We were paying for it already to reserve the spot, even though we didn't need it yet. Over the course of the next week, you know, I still remember vividly... Um, laying awake at night, not being able to sleep, picturing myself getting up, walking out the front door and just walking 
And, you know, I didn't picture myself harming myself, but I just envisioned disappearing. Okay. Because I thought that yeah. would be easiest for everyone. Okay. And so one morning after a night like that, when John had gotten up and gotten ready and was telling me goodbye before he went to class an hour away, I grabbed his arm and said, please don't go. Just please don't leave. So, and Luke, at this point, was Luke in daycare? So you were by yourself, or what? Well, this was early morning, um, okay. and so he was asleep in his crib. Okay. At, at, but that morning, John was like, "Okay, um, I won't go, but we're not just going to stay here. Luke's spot is open at the daycare. We're going to get up. Let's do a dry run. Let's get him ready. Let's start to figure this out. Yeah. Uh, morning routine and all of that. Yeah. So we did. We got up and got ourselves dressed and got Luke dressed and packed bottles and went to the daycare and dropped him off and went to Starbucks so that John could do schoolwork since he was missing class. Mm -hmm. And that was another turning point because that was the moment where, for the first time, I felt a glimmer of hope. Because all so much of this was wrapped up in my ability to take care of Luke, I felt for the first time that, oh good, he's in the hands of the professionals who know how to take care of him and who know how to feed him and keep him alive and manage a schedule. And I can breathe. And, you know, it sounds a little bit terrible to put it that way at this point, but for me in that moment, that was uh, a wash of relief. And so getting back to work and getting back Mm -hmm. into a routine where at work I at least felt minimally competent, like I knew what I was doing, even though I'd only been practicing for a year. And I figured that I could try to figure out the morning routine at home and the evening routine at home and the weekend routine with John by my side, and we could sort of figure this out little by little. Yeah. And so that was very stabilizing for me to be able to get back on a schedule yes. for myself and for Luke. I just really appreciate you just saying that out loud. <laughs> I think there's so many moms who need to hear that. And, I mean, parents, too, that that routine and stability is is important. And it is um, something that we, we really do need, and it's not, it's not a bad thing to need it, and it's not a bad thing to figure out ways to get it, and everyone has to do it, of course, because of their life circumstances, they have to do it in different ways, mm-hmm. but um, I just, thanks, thanks for saying that out yeah. loud. <laughs> no, I mean, and it's, it's true, you know, my, my own mom remarked to me growing up that she was a public school teacher for 31 years and including when I was born until the end of my fifth grade year. So she took her maternity leave but then went back, you know, full time. And I mean, a teacher's schedule is really nice for the early afternoons and the summers and all that. But even so, I mean, she worked, you know, throughout my elementary age and she she just knew herself well enough to say that she felt like she was a better mother to me because she was a teacher because she sort of kept doing what she had been doing and had that outlet. And that was, you know, a interesting perspective to me growing up. And I definitely took it for what it was. And before I had Luke, I had sort of assumed that at some point I would actually take some time off and be a full-time stay-at-home mom and have that experience. And 
you know, the, the postpartum experience is one that I didn't want to define me. I didn't want to live in fear of, you know, forever and always. But I think it did at least demonstrate for me that I may take after my mother in that regard. I, I honestly think that, again, for me, it's very individualized. Sure. But for me, I feel like I've been able to be a better mother to Luke because I went back to work and I maintained that outlet than if I had tried to be full-time at home with him from day one. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I, I really... So, you know, I have four kids and my oldest is 13 and I, throughout those 13 years, almost every year's look different for me. Mm-hmm. And I have had some kind of work almost mm-hmm. all of that time. There was a brief period of time when I pretty much was a stay-at-home mom. And I, and I do think that time period was a gift and it's like what I needed and it was really hard. It was, um, it was, it was relatively short and absolutely. I feel like my work is a gift Mm -hmm. to my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, not just in, in probably more ways than, I mean, obviously financially, but also, um, just what it does for me. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, it is stabilizing and, uh, and rewarding and there's just so many pieces of it that make make me a better mom for mm. sure yeah. <laughs> they, they they want me to go to work they don't realize it but they want <laughs> me to go to work yeah. yeah and I have so much respect and awe really for all of the moms out there who are with their kids full-time absolutely I again personally feel like I literally wasn't able to do it and there are times where you know I have to fight against the internal sort of guilt and condemnation that comes with that of saying, you know, well, I wasn't good enough. I couldn't hack it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in, I'm in awe. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And I do think, um, I think one reason why I really appreciate this conversation is I think that there are so many ideals that are put out there for moms, whether it's you've got to breastfeed or, um, I don't know, wear your baby in a scarf all day or whatever it is that's out there. But I, I, and I do think that, um, there is this ideal that we are supposed to kind of give up ourself, Mm -hmm. um, for our children, this kind of martyrdom that's supposed to come naturally in some way. And, and for some people, that means um, giving up yourself and working all the time. And so staying home is actually um, this kind of uh, self-giving, self-fulfilling kind of um, work that people do. But then also the uh, martyrdom can look, you know, totally giving up your career or any of your hobbies or anything and just totally being with your children all the time. And I think anything that can any kind of story or narrative that can help us let go of the whatever that ideal is mm-hmm. for any particular person is really helpful. And so that yeah, so I just I, I, I especially for anyone who out there is choosing to to work, mm-hmm. I think just to hear that yeah, I mean this is what you you know you felt like was good for you and good for Luke. It's it's really helpful to have it shared. Yeah, and it really was one of the main things that I can point to that the Lord used to bring me out of 
this really dark time and to bring healing. Um, you know, I can look back and say, yes, absolutely, the medication was a big part of it because yeah. it did provide that stabilizing floor from which I could start to function again. Getting back to work and the routine was a big part of it as well. And the other thing that I added on after I started back to work, which, again, I was not, I was not myself, and I felt like surely everyone can tell, like my colleagues, you mm. know, it, mm-hmm. it felt like a big spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, it doesn't seem like that's the case. No one's ever mentioned anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess I was doing okay enough on the outside. But the psychiatrist, you know, from the very beginning had said, look, you know, all the studies show medication plus talk therapy really gives the best results for yep. overcoming mm-hmm. things like this. And again, you know, in the early weeks, I was like, well, there's no way, you know, I don't have time to go to the store to get food so that we can live. There's no way I can go talk to somebody for an hour. (laughs) But, you know, by the time I started back working, I'm like, okay, I'm not where I need to be. We need to figure out how to make this happen. And so I did start going to see a counselor after my maternity leave. She had, you know, evening appointments one or two days a week, and I would go straight from work. John would figure out how to get from law school in Columbia to the daycare in Uptown to pick Luke up, to Mm -hmm. take him home and do the evening routine while I went to my appointment. And, you know, the first few, I mean, I was a blubbering mess through it all because I was having to process it all. And and the guilt was so palpable, you know, and the guilt of John having to do that, you know, to enable me to be Mm -hmm. there. And, but it was just so valuable just to be able to talk it through and to have someone else say, again, a professional, that, you know, this was not something that I had chosen. This was not something I had ever wished to go through. This was not, you know, something I was doing intentionally. And so I needed to really just let the guilt go. And, you know... I still remember things she told me like, don't judge your insides against other people's outsides. Because again, it felt very isolating. It felt like I am the only woman in the history of the planet who has not been able to do this motherhood thing because we just don't talk about it enough, you know? And so all I could see was everyone around me coming with their brand new babies and being able to nurse them and just seeming to do great. Yeah. And here I was not able to function at all. You know, I, after I had Eloise, um, I was in the middle, I had her in the middle of my uh, graduate program for marriage and family therapy, literally in the middle of the semester. And we, in our program, we were required to go to therapy. And so I had to go to this therapist. And I remember going through so many of the same emotions. I was like, are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, I have a baby and I'm in school. I was also seeing clients because that was the deal. If you're seeing clients and you have to be in therapy, what are you, are you kidding me? And then we, we had to pay for it. Um, like, uh-huh. you, this, you've put me in an, and you know, and I just happened to pick this. I literally went down the list. They gave us a list of people we could choose and, and I don't know, I just randomly chose this lady and found out later she was kind of known as the therapist's therapist. Oh. And she, I still have so, I would, if I could, I would call her and see if she'd do therapy on the phone from here. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was so amazing. Um, but I was kind of forced to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, ha, I, I had to. 
And it was such incredible timing because mm-hmm. Eloise was, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, she was just a couple months old mm-hmm. and when I started with her. And it, it was, becoming a mother was a crisis point for me. Yeah. Um, it was culture shock. And you're right, no, people, if they are talking about it, mm-hmm. I guess I just wasn't listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I just wasn't in the place yet to hear. I don't mm-hmm. know. But I felt like there were so many things completely changed about my life that I wasn't prepared for mm-hmm. and about me too mm-hmm. so it's like I didn't know myself I didn't yeah it was it was frightening mm-hmm. so the fact that I was kind of forced to go to a therapist was really an, an incredible gift at that point but yes I would have all the same like I'm trying to get someone to watch her because I remember mm-hmm. calling my therapist and told her I had a baby and I'll never forget she was like well I like babies <laughs> I do like them. But you can't bring her here. <laughs> and I don't remember how she said it, but it was pretty much like, you're not bringing her. You're not bringing her. And I was like, okay. <laughs> All right. I, I, I know. And I remember telling one of my supervisors in session about that phone call. And my supervisor was like, oh, I just love it when therapy starts on the phone. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was like, uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I guess it did. Uh-huh. Yeah, my therapy session started on the phone <laughs> with that little boundary right there. Really, um, I just knew enough about attachment, attachment theory, and mm-hmm. different things to do um, to do damage, really. <laughs> I hadn't really learned everything yet. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I thought she had to be with me, like, all the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd also, because I, I, I talking about guilt, mm-hmm. I was in class and I was seeing, and so it's like, if I wasn't in those places, I was going to be with Eloise all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. because it's like I had to make up for mm-hmm. this other time that I wasn't mm-hmm. with her. And I'd also come across some article somewhere that, and I'm sure I made stuff up when I read it in my head and added to it, but something about women did best in terms of depression and also um, that, that, that the child seemed to do well. When, uh, when there was only like a certain number of hours, um, you were working, like you, you Mm -hmm. shouldn't, it was good to work this much, but not more than this. And so speaking of, right. Speaking of lists, Emily, and our, our kind of tasks Mm -hmm. and all that, I had that number in my head and literally every week I would tally up how many hours I had been gone. And so I would like, okay, I've already, that was my quota. (laughs) exceeded my allotment. (laughs) That was my quota. I can't. can't nope. Nope. I'm, no. Forget. Forget anything else. So yeah, yeah, man, we're hard on ourselves. I know. Isn't that crazy? So hard. But I mean, we love the formulas. Right. Right. And I wasn't even a math major, <laughs> but I do love those formulas. I guess. When do you feel like you were completely kind of back to yourself? Like how many? months or weeks how long do you feel like it took you so I went back to work and started seeing the therapist around the beginning of October okay of 2007 after Luke was born in July okay and I remember Thanksgiving we went down to visit my parents who live about a couple hours away and on the way back we stopped in Columbia and visited some friends who had moved there for that year and It was a very pleasant visit, pictures were taken, and then like another day or two after that, I had occasion to see some of the pictures that were taken. 
And I remember that's the first time that I could see myself and recognize myself again. I was smiling in the pictures. There was light behind my eyes. It was like I was pretty much back or starting to come back. Okay. Um, and we're talking no- November? late November. Late November. Okay. Um, I was still on the medication, so I went back mm-hmm. on the medication after I weighed myself off. Okay. Um, and that was the right thing to do. And so four months. This is it's been about four months at that yes. point. Okay. Yeah. Which in the grand scheme of things is a really short period of time, but yeah. when you're going through it, oh it feels goodness. like an eternity. Yeah. And there's no certainty that it's ever going to end. Right, right. Um, and That's so, so true. Yeah. Being able to have that marker was big for me because another thing that I remember from in the depths of it was I would look at myself in the mirror like after I'd taken a shower, I was getting ready or whatever, and I literally could not recognize the person staring back at me. There was nothing behind my eyes. It was blank. Um Mm. and it was very disorienting and disconcerting yeah. to have that experience. So to be able to recognize myself again and feel life again was huge. Started sort of spreading out the therapy sessions at that point, you know, instead of every week, every other week, and then once a month, and that sort of trailed off. When the time was right, I did start to wean off the medication. Okay, um, so that following spring. Yep. And okay. so by about Memorial Day... Under doctor supervision. Under doctor supervision, <laughs> very slowly, over the course of many weeks, if not months. So that by about Memorial Day, um, I was off all the medication and functioning pretty normally. Okay. But yeah. Normally. Memorial Day. Okay. May. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, all in, you know, 10 months. 10 months. Um, yeah. But the worst of it, four months. Yeah. Okay. And do you feel like after that point, was there any any time when it came back, or was it just pretty much at bay? Like it just it, it was it was gone at that point. It was pretty much gone. Um, okay. Think where something random and small would happen, like our cabinet would get scratched, and I would start to feel like the. <gasps> but it was not a daily reality. I was not paralyzed by fear. I was functioning. I think I still was processing through just what had happened and having to let go of other fears, like the fear that Luke somehow knew and could tell what was happening in those first four months and our Mm -hmm. attachment was somehow fundamentally altered (laughs) or ruined. Um, And again... That's so scary. I mean, those are scary ideas. Yeah, they are. And, you know... John, again, was such a phenomenal father, which I'm so grateful for, and he still is. And he and Luke have had a special relationship always, even from those very early. But in those early months and years, you know, if you're not in a good place, you're having a bad day or whatever, you can start ruining on that. Or, you know, sometimes, is Luke close to John or is he a daddy's boy? Because, you know, Mm -hmm. he knew that I was, I basically emotionally abandoned him. You know, that's how... It felt, or that's the fear that I had. And so I would have to stop myself and say no. Or I would express it to John, and he would say, no, that's not right. right." Um, You know, he's fine. Luke and I have a great relationship. Yeah, we do. I, you know, enjoy him (laughs) a ton, and, you know. You can tell. 
I'm his mom, so, you know, I make him clean his face and put on mm -hmm. clean clothes, you know. <laughs> so, but there, you know, little things like that where I would still sort of need, yeah. need to remind myself of the truth and process through the experience um, and the ramifications of the experience. But in terms of daily functioning, I never sunk back down. Okay. Those times, because I, I mean, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I could imagine that every mom or maybe dad too, but parents out there in general struggle with those kind of thoughts at mm -hmm. a certain point. Could you tell or explain how you feel like your faith played a role in this whole process and your healing and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm even wondering, like, when you were in those really dark spaces, if that's how you would mm -hmm. describe them, if what what if you even had any kind of thoughts towards God um, or about your faith? Yeah. Um, so I definitely remember vividly in those early weeks and in some of the darkest times trying... One of the ways that I tried to pull myself up by my own bootstraps was by singing praise and worship choruses to myself or playing them on a speaker or something mm -hmm. or reciting scripture or writing out scripture about peace and mm -hmm. lack of anxiety. And, mm -hmm. and those things weren't bad by any means, but I discovered quickly that thinking positive thoughts and even thinking it it wasn't uh, bringing peace and it wasn't calming then. I don't think I blamed God. I don't think I was angry at God for where I was and when I was. And I don't think even when, you know, what I tried in those regards didn't work, that I had any sort of crisis of faith. It was just sort of a very real... Um, lesson to me of how things are not so simple. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times some of the messages, unfortunately, that can come from the church um, imply at least that, oh, you just have to have faith. You just have to have yeah. enough faith. You just have to do X, Y, or Z. You know, sometimes that is helpful for people, but sometimes it's not. Yeah. And when it's not, just understanding that that's, that's not the end of the world, that doesn't mean that those scriptures aren't true. That doesn't mean that God isn't good. It just means that life is messy and complicated. Yeah. And some things have physical components like chemical imbalances in the brain that need physical treatment as right. part of the solution and as part of the healing. Um, I'm so, so glad to hear you say all of that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't get angry or you, you didn't, you don't feel like you kind of had a losing your faith. Did it feel like God was far away? Yeah, I mean, my own personal, you know, walk during those weeks and certainly felt distant, you know. Um, throughout, so throughout it all, God's presence in the whole situation was palpable. And I felt like I could objectively identify ways in which he was providing for us. I, I wasn't you know, personally having intimate times of prayer or yeah. and be grateful for that. But I, I have no doubt that it was the Lord's provision that sustained us and that 
brought me out and it was multifaceted. So all of that was tremendously valuable. How did you know you weren't alone? So we were part of a community life group at the time and um, so right away, you know, the meal train started. So Mm -hmm. very practically not having to think about what we were going to eat was huge. Members of the community uh, came to the hospital when I went back in for that one night. Someone actually stayed with me that night when John had to go back and take care of Luke, and that was huge. And that first week of Luke's life took up her whole day. And wow. someone came and drove me to lactation. Others, you know, came and sat with Luke, even as they were waiting for the birth of their own grandchild, like a week later. And so there were just many, many ways. Just really that, a lot of practicalities mm-hmm. and just presence. Absolutely. Just showing up. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, having the the space to say out loud all the things that were in my head. Yeah. And it's so dark in our head. It is. You know? Yes. And it only oh. stays dark and gets darker mm-hmm. when we stay in there. And there's so much power in bringing whatever is going on into the light and bringing it out into the open and saying it out loud. So was key having someone speak truth to me and um, ask me good questions and make me think and be honest about not only what I had gone through, but then how I had reacted to what I had gone through. All the layers and the onion that keeps getting pulled back. Um, She had me read um, Hind's Feet in High Places, Mm -hmm. and that very helpful to just reading that story. It is a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. Just depiction of anxiety, and mm-hmm. but healing from anxiety. Hey, what was her name in the beginning? Is it, um, yeah, I forgot her name, fear mm-hmm. or something related to, yeah, to anxiety. Yeah. And yeah. The, the place I was in, just that very sort of straightforward allegory. Yes, much afraid. Much afraid. Exactly. Much afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it really resonated with me and I could very easily put myself in the shoes of that character and and just having you know someone tell me you know it's okay and you're gonna be okay and um you're not a bad person and (laughs) you know all of that again just hearing truth and being able to fall apart slowly but surely be put back together wow being able to fall apart like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot of space in our culture <laughs> to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, there's not much space in the church to fall apart. Yeah. Either. So, you mentioned, you know, we've kind of joked around about the list or the formulas and kind of, I don't even know if we've said the word, but what stands out to me or kind of comes to my mind is this idea of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel like that Mm -hmm. concept related or does, yeah, related to this whole experience for you? Yeah, I think that was a big part Mm -hmm. of it. And it was a big part of it unexpectedly for me. So I was sort of your classic perfectionist growing up as you might imagine, particularly around my schoolwork. And I know more stories, and I wish we had time to <laughs> share them. 
That would fill a podcast in itself. Um, ew. Yeah. <laughs> you made me back. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, yes. So. Just leave it the, at that. Yes, yeah, so we'll leave it at that. Yes. By the end of college, I had burned myself out with my yeah. perfectionism. But in a really sort of ultimately good and healthy way in that I felt legitimately delivered from okay. perfectionism mm-hmm. because I just couldn't do it anymore. So entering law school, I shot for B's. That was my goal, <laughs> which for a perfectionist is huge to be yeah, able to say that. And right. Like, oh, whatever happens, happens. B's and, at Harvard. All well, right. you know. <laughs> right. I recognize it, right? A little strange, but so, um, yeah, for you, yes, for that me, that was, was a big step, big, big deal. So mm-hmm. by this point, again, honestly, I thought that I had sort of experienced personal growth in this area and didn't struggle with that anymore. But what this whole experience revealed, or one of the things it revealed to me, is that I was still holding on to elements of perfectionism when it came to motherhood. Mm-hmm. That I had certain ideas in my head of wanting to be the perfect mother and the perfect mother of a newborn looks very, you know, list oriented, schedule oriented, or at least in my mind, in my Mm -hmm. type A mind, it was, you know, okay, he needs to feed at three, six, nine and 12 around the clock and sleep through the night by 12 weeks. And, you know, all these things, um, that, I subconsciously, I guess, was bringing into it. Um, But coming through this experience of utterly failing was, in the end, a real blessing in disguise and I think legitimately broke me of that for good. And definitely for, for motherhood. And I'm so grateful for that because I feel like if somehow I hadn't experienced this and I was able to sort of make it through but still have that perfectionism aspect of my motherhood, I can only imagine what Luke's experience would have been in that, you know, because even though the majority of the focus was on me and me being a perfect mother, that necessarily requires certain results of the child, right? And so of him growing up sort of feeling this pressure to be a certain way or do a certain thing at a certain time. To confirm your perfectionism. Exactly. Right. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. I, I just, it would have been stifling, I think. Yeah. Um, so coming out of this, I feel like I was able to hold him much more loosely. I was able mm. to have a lot more grace for myself um, and just have some freedom in that and in mothering him and learning who he was and as our friend Shelly Jones liked to say parent the child you have not the child you thought you wanted Mm -hmm. um and that sort of thing so yeah as you were just talking about all of that it so one thing did kind of challenge certain parts of my personality that really needed challenging I mean you can't you can never work, you can never get to the end of the to-do list mm-hmm. as a mom. I mean, and that's, <laughs> and that's what I just love, you know? I think I really love to work hard and I love, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't, I'll stay up all night. Yeah. And it's just, it, it really, and, and I, so yeah, I think these parts of me really needed challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing I had to kind of work through and get to the other side of was when I swing over to this side of the pendulum for a while to get balance, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, I try, you know, there was a lot of things I let go of mm -hmm. that I eventually came to this point where I had to go back and appreciate that other part of me yeah. and realize that the list-making Emily isn't bad Emily, right. that that is still part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and that it's okay to, I don't think I've, I ever told you this, but in the same week, it's been over a year, because I, I don't know why, it just really stood out to me. I remember you um, calling me, and you probably won't remember, it was it was a week where you, when you threw the surprise party for me when Aww. I graduated from, <laughs> with my PhD, but you mentioned something about me being a machine. Mm. Well, the very same week, uh, our friend Sarah Henderson, she, a gypsy, and it was the funniest thing to me to have the two of you kind of really highlight these two different parts of me. Mm -hmm. And I think I loved it so much and it was really affirming and kind of healing for me because I feel like I'm in a good place when I can balance mm -hmm. both of those parts mm -hmm. and appreciate them and not demonize either mm -hmm. one of them. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm thinking about perfectionism, I can also see how that's related to who you are and what I said and you are incredibly steady and you are going to be at burn boot camp every <laughs> single morning at 5 a.m. <laughs> even if you didn't go to sleep until midnight the night before working and I'm gonna see you well if I get there at 5 30 which is not as um, reliable and there is such there are s some gifts there for sure so I guess I just wanted to say that and wondered if you'd had any of that experience. can still appreciate that part of you that is really, I'm sure, a gift to Luke and John, and I know is a gift to our community. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, definitely, for sure. I mean, I'm still who I am, you know, at my core. And so when it comes to loving lists and tests and type A and working hard, you know, yeah, that's still very much. And I, I do see the value in it. I'm grateful that I think the obsessiveness maybe mm. is what has been broken. Okay. And the ability to to work hard and to get things done, but not have to have it be perfect. Yeah. I really have okay. learned the value of good enough. Mm. And... I know, you know, different contexts, different situations, personally, professionally, you know, there needs, you have to have standards, you know, I'm, I'm all for excellence and striving for excellence and, you know, I'm in a client service field, so we're all about, you know, what is the client need by when, you know, and that's right. our job is to meet their needs. So all of that is very important to me, but... And I've been with you when you've answered phone calls and <laughs> right. had to step out for meetings and exactly yeah, um, in the car on the way to a retreat. Uh, <laughs> yep, that's right. <clears throat> um, but I think, you know, just it's apples to oranges, but picturing, you know, high school Emily or even college mm -hmm. striving for excellence by obsessing about 
the 100. Yeah. Um, or the 98 being two points less. It's a very different and I think unhealthy aspect of that core to where now, you know, I can genuinely try my best, do my best, try to excel, but also recognize all the competing demands. Your use of that word obsess, obsessive, that just that, that that may be the edge Mm -hmm. that's been taken off. And, Mm -hmm. and, and I also think that there is kind of this progression in our, um, I don't know, our fe- I mean, I, I don't want to just put it all on females. I mean, I think maybe it's a human thing, too, where we kind of go through this journey of finding balance, mm-hmm. which I don't, I think is elusive. I don't think we ever right. can find it. <clears throat> um, and, and what constitutes balance, I think what I need in my life for balance now won't be the same as what I need next year, next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to constantly get to know yourself and, um, and grow and, and, and that knowledge. And I think, um, for me, the balance, it's like my, my gypsy needs the machine and mm-hmm. my machine needs the gypsy and yeah. they, 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 they need each other to, to be healthy. And so learning how to feed both, both sides and is, and, and is, is important. So, I don't even know how long we've been talking. I think, I feel like I could just, yeah. I know, I know you and I can talk for a really long time. <laughs> how much editing do you want to do? Right. Oh my gosh. Like, uh, that's that. Yeah. You and I, I know we can. We're talking, we're thinking. So I know I've got to wrap things up, but no. I, I, cause even as you were talking, I was like, Oh, we, we can go down this, this trail. Awesome. I will take us down, but I will stop. So if you were talking to somebody who was going through that right now, if they were facing that, that postpartum depression or anxiety, and you know, I don't even know if I want to confine it to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I think if someone is going through anxiety or depression, period, mm-hmm. what, based on your experiences and what you've learned, maybe, maybe it's something you hope you wish someone had said to you, or maybe they did say it to you. Mm-hmm. What would you want to say to that person? That there is another side that you feel like you're in a tunnel and you can't see any speck of light yet at the end of that tunnel. But the tunnel does end. And I can tell you that because I'm on the other side. Mm. I walked through the tunnel and I didn't know if my tunnel had an end. But it did. And every tunnel does. Mm. and wow that's been one of the other huge gifts of this experience i've had opportunities to talk to people who are experiencing very real anxiety both postpartum and not and i have been able to look them in the eye and say literally i know exactly what you're feeling yeah and it's horrible because when you just throw around the word anxiety, at least before I went through this, it's like, oh, you're just sort of a little bit scared about something. And that doesn't do it justice right. at all. Yeah. And without having gone through it, it's really hard to understand. And so being able to say, I literally felt what you're feeling. I know 
the shortness of breath and the heart palpitations and the racing thoughts and the inability to make a decision or string words together. When I'm actually able to have a conversation with someone who's experiencing that level of anxiety, that's one thing I comment on. I'm like, I'm amazed that you're able to have this conversation with me right now because when I was where you were, I could not string the words together to have the conversation. So just having that gift of very real empathy and being able to be a testament to healing, I've just been very grateful and felt very privileged to have that opportunity. And it's so hard because having gone through it, you know, there's nothing I want more than to be able to snap my fingers and mm. bring the light of the tunnel immediately right now for that person. And I can't. And it's very frustrating. And I don't know what their path and their journey is going to look like, what their puzzle pieces are going to be that bring their healing. But I can at least testify to there will be healing. Wow. And don't be afraid of whatever the Lord might be doing to bring that healing and what all the puzzle pieces might be. Talk to a psychiatrist, maybe. <laughs> Explore medication. You know, have you spoken to a therapist? Yeah. Here's a four-count breathing technique that I've found really helpful during panic attacks. You know, just things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Emily, for mm -hmm. sharing and Thank being you. willing to, to hang out and talk with me today. And... Um, I, that's, I love that image of the tunnel and the, also the, the puzzle pieces. I like that a lot. It really resonates with me and, um, I'm sure I, well, I know you've been incredibly helpful and healing to so many people and I've been where you've shared your story and it always, uh, is so impactful, always, um, so thank you for hanging out today. And I don't know, I may end up having to have you back <laughs> so we can talk about maybe just perfectionism in general. Or maybe we could just have a podcast where we talk about making lists. We'll just, just talk about making lists. That would be so. good. Could we make a list on the podcast and then cross things off as we talk about them? Because that would be great. We, you know, that would be amazing. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us on Unstuck. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider giving us a review on iTunes or sharing this podcast on your preferred social media outlet. Until next time, breathe life in deep, embrace the journey, and notice the details. See you later, friend.